0: This is NER Out Loud, the official podcast of the New England Review. NER Out Loud animates stories and poems through vocal performances,
1: celebrating the artistic exchange between text and voice. I'm Leila Marcosian And I'm Raha Huda. As the New England Review's summer interns, we are excited to be your hosts for this episode. Phoebe Stone and Francois Clemens are the two Vermont memoir writers we are featuring in this latest installment of the Vermont Writers Series. In this episode, we're bringing you readings that explore
0: the question of why we're shaped by the memories we have and why we feel compelled to write them down.
2: Well, it seems to me that we we only have a certain amount of memories of when we were very, very young. And those are not going to grow. Those are going to just be those memories. But, um... I think that I was interested in studying the memories closely because I decided there must have been some reason why those, of, out of all the memories that we have, those memories are the ones that we retained. Why? You know, why? So I, I explored that a little bit. That inquisitive
0: voice you just heard belongs to Phoebe Stone, who will be reading first today. Here she is with Teapot in Turquoise, an excerpt from her memoir in progress, Treeful of Sky. She read this piece to us in the Middlebury
2: College WRMC studio. Teapot in Turquoise. I was with my mother at Christmas time in England when she found the tea set. It was late in the day, I was 11 years old, and there it was, sitting in a cramped, low ceiling antique shop next to a pillar. I can see the tea set clearly now, in the oval orb of memory where it floats, dusty and blue-green and delicate, with gold edges around the scalloped cups and plates. My mother knew immediately that she wanted to buy it. That was the year my mother couldn't say no to anything antique for a table, not here in this quirky, quaint country where she felt so isolated, like an island herself not when she wanted to go home to America so much. She often cried and told my father so over and over again. Many of their terrible fights were about money, money we didn't really have, money my mother was spending on little English antiques that seemed to her so reasonably priced they were almost free, almost. As my mother looked at the teapot, she imagined she would bring breakfast on a tray to my father in bed their lives would be transformed by the tea set. She imagined a morning as the sunlight hit the edge of the turquoise scallops. My father would look up at her as if in a painting. He would be lying among yellowed folds of linen, propped against a pillow, a tray on his lap overflowing with sunlight, and this tea set tucked up with buttered toast and boiled eggs. While my mother bought the tea set, I looked through the window. Outside the air was crinkly and bright with tiny Christmas lights along the cold nighttime street. Sweet shops and tea shops shimmered. The air was steeped in excitement and yet rubbed with a layer of anxiety, a layer of foreign snow and unfamiliar Christmas carols about a mother in a blue robe hiding with her miracle baby in a barn from a cruel king named Herod in a desert country thousands of years ago. Lule, lule, thou little tiny child, bye-bye, lule, lule. Memory and dream mix and mingle. It was Noel, the season of good King Wenceslas in England, and yet everything seemed dark, Blurred with the cold colors of stone and gray brick, chanting choir music, the vaulted ceilings of cathedrals we had toured, and then Christmas lights, the twinkle of anticipation, the thread of magic, wonder, edged all in gold. There were thorns of holly, wreaths, crowns, and pricked fingers bleeding in the snow, drops of blood like berries falling from green boughs, once in royal David's city, and the flaring eyes of King Herod, a Jewish king, and me, a Jewish girl, or half-Jewish. My teacher at school would drill past my desk, pierce holes in the air around me. Christ was killed by the Jews, she would say, and then she'd look deep, deep, deep into me. What did I have within? I was but a girl, eleven years old, who stood there holding back with her weightless, narrow body what was to come. I was but a small church with a blue ceiling, and in the back next to the organ, hidden behind a door not yet opened, my pitiful Jewish father hanging by his neck from a rope. No, a bathrobe belt, his long, bony, and beautiful feet drifting above the floor, the soles of them almost touching wood, almost touching stone, almost... Perhaps my mother and I drove home that evening with the box of turquoise dishes on the car seat. Or maybe we walked with the cold English night air blowing through our coats, my mother carrying the box in her arms. Where were my sisters? I cannot say. All that remains is this orb, this isolated oval of memory, a turquoise tea set floating there in the shadowed store. For Christmas at school... I was to be one of three angels in white, alone on the stage, singing, "'Angels we have heard on high.'" I had a white choir gown, ironed freshly, smelling of pressed cotton and steam and starch and soap. I was to kneel in front of the audience with the other two girls chosen— In practice we sang, our voices quavering with high notes, clear and blue, like the interior of a chapel painted the color of sky. But do not open the door in the back next to the organ, for therein you will find his legs, the pierced palms bleeding, the bony knees slumped above the long tender feet, almost touching the floor that night of the Christmas performance at school. My mother and father attended, all dressed up, my father in a necktie, my mother's face bright with tears and moisture and lipstick. They came into my school and sat in the classroom, in the audience. I cannot recall, was it the classroom? All I remember is the moment before I went out onto the stage with the two other girls in white. That moment, I discovered a way to look like I was singing without singing it seemed like magic to me oh a trick I just invented I will mouth the words and not sing and no one will know and so as I knelt there I opened my mouth and pretended and I did not sing there were only two voices of two angels the third mimed the words and made circles and squares with her lips and was silent It would have been a triumphant moment had I sung. I had, it seems to me now, a beautiful child's singing voice, but I didn't sing. I had a crowning moment within my reach, and I had dropped it, not realizing I had broken it. Instead of clusters of glory, praise, and passion, and cookies dripped in green icing, my father was bitter with me after the performance. "'Why didn't you sing?' he said. "'I didn't come here to listen to the others singing. "'I came here to listen to you sing.' "'He turned, buttoned his coat, and walked away. "'I didn't know what I had done or what I had missed "'or even why I had done it. "'My white choir dress lay wrinkled in my arms, "'and we must have gone home then, "'leaving me with that single orb of memory.' being in the glaring bright light in the silence, the voices of the two girls singing, angels we have heard on high, my mouth going up and down, opening and closing, and uttering not a sound. My mother must have put the turquoise tea set in the kitchen in a cupboard, She might have used it after a dinner she created in the tiny dining room where the large upright piano stood. There was no window in that dining room, only a small coal fireplace and sometimes a table. We had a roast beef dinner there that holiday season with wine goblets and English silver crystal and heavy sterling forks. My father spoke with reverence about Chateau Neuf de Pop wine and we each had a sip of it, poured into our delicate wine glasses. It tasted harsh and burned like blood in my throat, thorns of holly swaddled in folds of memory. We taught our fingers that night to go along the rim of the wine glass at just the right angle to make a high-pitched whine, a wailing cry, a keening siren sound. A warning. The roast beef was too fatty; I felt sick; the room too small; the silverware too heavy; the coal fire too hot. Did we have tea in the turquoise tea set after dinner? It seems now in my mind to have been threaded to that Christmas as if those delicate turquoise Copeland-spowed butterflies were in the air or passing lightly over our plates, hovering above a mandarin orange pie baked by my older sister, a butter crust such as I have never tasted since, and tiny tender canned orange slices, doll-sized, Everything around us exuding mystery, as if even the air were wrapped in Christmas paper or in a kind of blue luminescence, tinsel at the edges, all around the rims of my memory. And the next day, my father pulled me aside in the hallway while my mother napped or vanished in her gray, foggy raincoat to the park along the cam down the street. She loved to walk along the river where the swans floated, her face awash with longing, flickering joy and homesickness, a conflicting blend like the black watch plaid skirt she wore. I bought a Christmas present for your mother, Would you tell me what you think? Will she like it, my father said. A secret moment between us. We stood together, he and I, leaning in and out, my father revealing his tenderness, his youthfulness, the young boy lying within, behind the sad eyes. At that moment he was darkly romantic to me and anguished and pulled a tiny red leather box from his pocket, the light so bright, the little box in the palm of his hand trembling. Leaning toward the wall, he was the skinny poet, long-legged and hopeful, a nervous suitor, a shy lover, all revealed, all pretense dropped. Do you think she'll like it? he said. It reminds me of her, the face of the woman. How honored I, as if bestowed with a gentle mantle, a mantle of trust, responsibility, adulthood, a tiny slice of what was to come. I stepped for a moment into the waiting body of my future self my opinion my father wanted my opinion i the fallen angel the eleven-year-old watcher i who looked down at myself in the bathtub seeing my tiny breasts forming and pubic hair beginning in strands of blue against my milky child's skin all in the green water as I floated there, the curved porcelain tub holding me, lifting me into my new forming body, stretching out under me, light as wood. Me, the awkward singing angel who was silent? My opinion? My father opened the little box, and inside a ring— a delicate gold band with red stones surrounding it, a tiny painting of a woman, a lovely face set among red jeweled facets of the ring. Oh, such a tiny treasure lying in his large moving palm. Do you think she'll like it? He said again. Oh, yes, Daddy. Yes, it's beautiful, so beautiful, I said, my little hand on his back, my eyes heavy, waited on Christmas Eve I lay in my steely bed with my older sister the cold night sky outside full of candles and songs of angels and clouds of fire sharp green ivy and pine blood red holly berries was I a Jew was Christ killed by the Jews what my teacher says is that true I once asked my father what do you think he said turning away his face merging into shadow. My mother was not a Jew. My father was a Jew. What did it mean? What about the churches we visited all last autumn? Endless arched doors we had entered, tintern abbey all in shambles grass everywhere inside it grass climbing over the tombs over the statues the figure of christ seen just barely through the broken stones and blowing soft green grass and then in bigger cathedrals the long statues of dead kings stretched out on top of heavy tombs or the sad queens in marble lying cold with their beloved pets a carved greyhound at the foot A favorite dove nestled in hand. What about the line of choir stalls, the tearful red-stained windows above the kneeling sorrow, the feet of Christ crossed at the bottom of the body, pierced with nails, the palms bleeding, long bony feet, the soles almost touching the floor? I knew my mother did not like jewelry, I never saw her wear a necklace or a bracelet or a lovely ring. She told my father over and over again, I want a silver teapot for Christmas, sterling for English tea. Her face half turned to the window, the wan English light casting her profile in longing for home for America. That Christmas, that winter, As I lay in the long tub of green water in the large bathroom upstairs, dark linoleum under feet, I drifted there in the water, and as I drifted I changed, transformed into a stranger to myself. Tiny breasts grew larger, soft pubic hair thicker; I floated there unknowing, asleep, awake, startled my father in early March in a rooming house in London tied a bathrobe belt around his neck and hung from the back of a door, his body dropping low under him his long expressive feet almost touching the floor into the folds of yellowed memory he disappeared and never came back but who was to blame who caused it no one No one was to blame. It was not the ring, not the money for the turquoise tea set, not the angel with tied vocal cords who did not sing. It had been something already in motion, already set and ready, like a trap poised to snap or a teapot waiting to be filled on Christmas morning with warm, soothing, healing water. Many years later, on another Christmas morning when I was in my twenties, my mother gave me a gift in a brown cardboard box. I would cry over it as it lay there in my lap, the turquoise tea set, each piece swathed in newspaper; I would see the butterflies through the rips and holes in the wrapping; I did not know then that my life would be a kind of puzzle with a pattern. I did not know the pattern of turquoise flowers and butterflies on scalloped white porcelain would somehow repeat itself or weave itself into my days, my months, my years. And then one night, in another Cambridge in Massachusetts, where I was living later, I had the tea set on the counter in the kitchen, and when a nail gave out, A cast-iron frying pan fell off the wall suddenly and knocked the teapot to the floor and smashed it into pieces. I sat up all night, gluing every single piece back together, every morsel of china, so that when finished, the teapot looked to be whole, although it could never hold water again. It sat on the table Glued together at breakfast, the repairs barely visible, the blue-green delicate pattern overriding the cracks, the fissures. But when the light from the morning sun fell across the body of the teapot, casting shadows on hidden moments, you could see clearly the pure and the raw, the shatter of it.
1: That was Phoebe Stone reading from her memoir. She is a painter, poet, and author. Phoebe's written seven novels for young adults published by Arthur A. Levine Books at Scholastic and three picture books published by Little Brown and Company. She grew up in a family of poets and novelists and has spent most of her life painting and writing. She is presently working on a series of memoirs and short stories. NER published two previous excerpts from her memoir in progress last fall in volume 39, number three. Next, we'll hear from Francois Clemens.
3: Gonna find me a bluebird And let him sing me a song Cause I'm all through crying All day long Gonna chase me a rainbow through Different people have, obviously, different reasons for wanting to tell their story. Nobody else can tell your story. If you think it's important, I think it's important to tell this particular story. Because when I was a boy, I didn't have any gay male role models. Where do you go to learn to be gay? So that's why I think it's important to write this book, because there weren't any like this when I was young.
0: That was Francois Clemens who spoke to us in the WRMC studio about his forthcoming book, Diva Man, My Life in Song. Here he is, reading from the beginning, an excerpt from that memoir.
3: I can't sit down. I can't sit down. I can't sit So when I was born, the Sanders Scarborough clan had lived for several generations in the sprawling, blanched little town of Blackwater, Mississippi, just north of Meridian in the backwater region, near the Oktatibi Reservoir. And the Alabama border. If you weren't a cotton farmer or sharecropper or a smithy who worked for white folks, there wasn't much else to do there. Some folks got along raising chickens and guinea fowl and some did light farming but could not prosper. Each year they fell further in debt to the landowner old man Sanders. Twice in our clan's memory, the floods had come in late spring and no one had been able to plant in time for a summer crop. The seed money was wasted. But most folks stayed on because they didn't have any place else to go. It seemed better to be around your own folks to scratch out a living in the tired earth They moved to some strange place where folks called you Mr. and Mrs. and didn't know your nickname or your granddaddy's name or how your Uncle Jeb had lost one finger in the smithy on Master Sanders' homestead. Or even who to call for a county fair game of baseball. New folks wouldn't know nothing about all that about you. There was no way to live so folks stayed on, hard as it was. To my great-grandmama Laura May Sanders Penman, this is what seemed important and what made her call this place home. But she was tired. Laura May Sanders Penman had raised 13 children of her own, and found herself once again imprisoned by the grandchildren and great-grandchildren that she had raised when her mamas couldn't do it. The children just kept on coming. She would cook, and she would clean. She would wash, and she would pray. The more she did, the more it seemed there was to do. So she worked, and didn't slow up for old memories to catch her. The old homestead on Master Sanders' land had been falling apart for as long as she could remember. Every shutter was hanging down or gone. The paint that she had helped put on when she was a young girl had never been refreshed. It was barely visible. If she could ever get that front door to close on that sagging porch, it might help to keep the marsh rats from invading the kitchen on hot summer nights she was always mindful not to leave food out where they could get it. And she felt constant dread that those rats might crawl into the bedroom of one of her grandchildren, her baby grands, and bite one of her darlings. When it rained, every bucket and pot in the house was used to catch that water. There were many causes for sadness in her life. But the way people tell it, the greatest sadness of all was when her last husband, Noah Leon Penman, got killed. Ten years before the second flood, Noah Leon Penman could work good and easy with his hands and had a quick smile and pretty teeth. He had been her third husband and had stayed around the homestead the longest. Every day, Laura May missed him went on about her business. Otherwise, she might start remembering again that day that he was killed. My own mama, Inez Delores, would sometimes tell me and my brother the story later on after we moved up north to give us an idea of how it was down south in those old days. The way she told it, everybody knew that great-grandmama Laura May was old man Sanders' woman. He came by to see her most every week. Noah Leon Penman, Laura May's third husband, knew it too. Even though he had agreed to work the farm for Old Master Sanders, he hadn't agreed to nothing else. Noah went on about his business farming, and with the help of the kids, year after year, got the planting and harvesting done. There was always some fence that needed mending or, or some field that was not growing right and needed water or new airing or something. He kept the cheering busy, and they all worked together from sunup to sundown. That was just the way it was in those days. Most of the time, Noah Leon just ignored old Master Sanders and his late afternoon visits. Great-Grandmama Laura may used to wonder how it was that Noah Leon always seemed to know when old Master Sanders was coming around and just disappeared into the fields. She tried to ignore it, too. She had been going with Old Master Sanders for so long that it just seemed natural to her. She didn't know any other way. Mama Inez would say that her great-grandmama Lily May had told Laura May to go with Old Master Sanders when she was a young girl, and it had been that way ever since. Laura May's mama, Lily May, had been a slave on the Sanders plantation all her life and had always been worried by the white men who came by the place. That's just the way it was. And she was no different from any of the other colored girls around there, even if she had wanted to say something. Her cousin Dinah May, who was two years older, had had two babies by Master Shulman on the old Shulman plants. Dinah May had told her so. After the first time with old Master Shulman, Dinah May's mother, Timorene, had gotten her a drink, some gullet tea she had made from frog urine, crushed fish fins, and herbs. But the tea made Donna May so sick, she threw it all up and nearly fainted. After that, she refused to drink any more of that old tea, and the baby started coming. Laura May didn't want to be like that Donna May. So she didn't want to have any children yet either, but she didn't know what to do. Even so, what she did with old Master Sanders was her business. It wasn't for nobody else asking or telling. One day, Norleon asked her to come to town with him and not go with old Master Sanders when he came by. And she just looked at him and kept on with her cooking and cleaning. When Master Sanders came by the old house that night, Norleon Penman stuck around. Laura May pulled off her apron and headscarf, wiped her face and hands, and straightened her simple dress as she had always done when Master Sanders came, and she walked slowly out of the house, down the path and past the barn. But tonight she could feel Noah Leon's eyes just following her. The yearning and longing and pain in hysteria was calling after her so loud that her ears started knocking she felt dizzy. She felt like his eyes were piercing her back like the gleaning hooks used to hang the cows after slaughter. She didn't like leaving and going with Master Sanders, but this is the way that it had been for so long she had stopped worrying and wondering. If she didn't go with old Master Sanders, she knew that they couldn't stay in the old homestead any longer. She didn't know where else they would go. This place was home. This was the only home she had ever known. And that's the way things were. Well, why was Noah Leon doing this? Lara May was wondering. Why hadn't he gone on off to the fields like he always did so she could meet old Master Sanders down past the barn and come on back home so that they could live here? In this old homestead without no trouble. But just past the old barn, Master Sanders walked closer and spoke to her, as he always did. He asked her how she was feeling and if she was glad to see him. She tried to smile and said, yes, as she always said, yes. He told her how he had... Wanted to stop by and see her earlier that week, uh, but his work and family had kept him away. Lord, he had been saying that more than 20 years, and Laramie had stopped listening. But tonight, she was troubled by the pounding of her heart and the sharp voice calling her from the house. It was Noah Leon telling her come on back to him and leave old Master Sanders. Why was Noah Leon talking that way to her now? She would soon come on back to the house and the family. Old Master Sanders was still talking to her as she tried to block the hurt and anguish of Noah Leon's voice out of her ears. His voice got louder, and suddenly she realized that he was standing close by. She wheeled around and stared at him He's had a big chopping cleaver raised in his hand over his head and was coming towards old Master Sanders. And she screamed as she heard the shots ring out. Bang! 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 Noah Leon stood motionless and stunned. Old Master Sanders had reached into his overall pocket and pulled out the pistol he cried and shot Noah Leon point-blank three times without stopping. Now, everybody knew he had carried that pistol. He sometimes used it on sick livestock and stray rabbits. Didn't no know, know it? But Laura May never had time to speak. It happened so fast. No Leon was on the ground at her feet, bleeding from his chest and stomach, and she was about to bend over and help him stand back. Old Master Sanders barked. Let him stay there. Nobody touch him. Let the slimy bastard lay there where he belongs in the dirt. I never liked him anyway. At the sound of the gunshots, everybody in the house had come out running. They all stood there and nobody moved, not even the babies. They were all afraid of old Master Sanders, and they knew that he would shoot any one of them just as quick as he had shot Noah Leon if they tried to help him. He looked around and his eyes stopped on great Grandmamma Laura May, and she started crying. And she fell to her knees and crawled over to Noah Leon's body. Blessedly, he had died before he hit the ground. May gathered what was left of him and rocked him in her arms gently as she cried and wailed. And she rocked him as, as though he were her baby and he was only asleep old master Sanders told everyone to leave him be and not to bury him. Silently, everyone backed away while old master Sanders stood there over Laura May who was crying and rocking Noah Leon's body. She looked so pitiful and helpless there on her knees while Noah Leon's blood slowly soaked the front of her dress. After mumbling something to Laura May and getting no response, old Master Sanders just shook his head, turned around and walked away, putting his gun in his pocket. He walked away without looking back, past the barn and up the path, To the old house, he moved silently around the side and got on his horse and rode away. Mama Alias Deloes remembered that after the gunshots killed Noah Leon, great-grandma Laura May had sobbed and wailed in the yard for the rest of the evening. She was still there when Aunt Corridale and, and cousin Donna May walked over to her and called to her softly and carried her into the house. Now, after dark, some of the men went back for Noah Leon's body and carried it into the house. They laid him out and washed him and cleaned off the blood. Great grandmamma Laramie insisted on being in charge of everything. She gave him his last bath with love and great patience as she talked to herself and anyone there who was listening. She kissed his body and rubbed him with Vaseline and the lanolin that she used for her hair. When they had all finished cleaning and dressing him in overalls, she sat silently all night and continued to talk and sing and pray to him. She sat for the rest of the night with the Bible in one hand in her lap and her other hand on him. When people began to wake up in the morning before the rooster crowed, they found her still in silent vigil with her Bible. She was like a walking, nodding, trance woman for some time. Weeping quietly, and she stayed that way until some of Noah people arrived from Louisiana. They wanted to take his body back home to be buried. She wouldn't hear any of it. Finally, she allowed him to be buried on a little hill by the creek. She put up a little wooden cross. That way she could see him every day and take food and flowers to his grave. That was the way she wanted it, and no one could change her mind. Noah Leon's people went on home without him. When old Master Sanders came back, weeks, maybe months later, it wasn't to see great-grandmama Laura May. It was to introduce Mr. Slim Hawkins to everybody as the new overseer for the plantation. That time Great Grandma Laura May never came out of the house. Seemed like he waited for her a long time, but she never came out. Now he stood around with his horse and the trough looking and just a waiting. After that he came to the old homestead to talk to Slim about the crops and to discuss planning. But he never came to worry great grandmama Lara May again. Those days were over. Noah Leon died. Nothing much was ever said of Noah Leon's death. No questions, no investigations, no detectives, no county sheriff, no coroner's inquest, no court case, no trial, no nothing. That's what I remember most. About my mama's telling of great grandmama Lara May's story. Everybody knew something, and nobody said nothing. How long it took before things returned to normal, nobody knew. It just happened.
0: That was Francois Clemens reading From the Beginning.
1: Francois Scarborough Clemens is a singer, actor, and writer who had a long career as an opera singer performing with the New York City Opera, Cincinnati Opera, and more. He created and played the role of Officer Clemens on the children's TV show Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood and founded and directed the Harlem Spiritual Ensemble. He was Alexander Twilight artist-in-residence at Middlebury College from 1997 to 2013, where he directed the Martin Luther King Spiritual Choir. He published From the Beginning last summer
0: in NER volume 39, number two. His memoir is forthcoming from Catapult next year. and Francois warmed their audience on a chilly March evening at Middlebury's Town Hall Theater with heartfelt readings of their memoirs and stuck around for a Q&A session afterwards.
2: Well, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what it is like to write for adults versus writing for children. I think it has to do with the material, really. It's different, yeah.
3: Uh, I think she's right. I I would tend to agree. When I talk with the adults, we have to use different words. I like that we're able to have what I call an adult conversation. Here you were, those
2: young tender ages that you described, going through tragic circumstances. And our choice is always how do we respond
3: to that. And I just think it is magnificent that both of you colored this world with so much beauty, with
0: your painting, Phoebe, with your singing, Francois, and it is a gift to all of us that you
1: have shared some moments that have been underlying everything, of life in art. If you want more of the New England Review or want to know more about the stories you heard today, come to our website to read and subscribe. If you like what you heard, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts to help more people find the
0: show. The NER Out Loud podcast is produced by the New England Review in association with Oratory Now. Today's readings were recorded in the WRMC studio at Middlebury College. The Q&A was recorded at a live event in Middlebury's Town Hall Theater. Our executive producers are Carolyn Keebler and Dana Yatin. Our sound engineer is Gary Savoy. This episode was produced by Juliet Lewini and edited by Rahat Huda and Leila Markosian. If you have a favorite piece from the magazine you would like to hear read aloud, email us at nereview at
1: middlebury.edu. I'm Rahat Huda. And I'm Leila Markosian. And you've been listening to NER Out Loud, the official podcast of the New England Review. Thank you for listening.